You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. After the Mount Carmel drama that we considered last week with all of Israel gathered as spectators crying aloud, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God, in chapter 18, verse 39, as that fire fell from heaven and burned up that altar, and then the 450 prophets of Baal were killed for their deceit after three years of drought in the land, at Elijah's word, chapter 18, verse 41, the rain returned. This should have been a time of great national celebration, shouldn't it? But as we return to the ivory-clad palace of Ahab and Jezebel and eavesdrop in their royal conversations, what's the first thing we hear them talking about? Chapter 19, verse 1 tells us, Ahab told a half-truth. Ahab told a half-truth. Do you see it there in chapter 19, verse 1? Now, Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Now, in many ways, this shouldn't surprise us today. Having witnessed firsthand that the state-sponsored worship of Baal was an absolute fraud, and it was, he was nothing but a made-up chump who needed to be dumped, and that the Lord, the God of Israel, whom he served, had proven himself once again, we would have thought that Ahab would have come to his senses and come shuddering back to the Lord, the God of his ancestors. But no, he does what any politician or public figure or even people like us do when he's been caught between what's easiest and what's hardest. He spins a story. So his not-so-darling wife Jezebel is deceived. Instead of talking about the abject failure of Jezebel's God, Baal, do you hear what he said? Do you hear the lie that he tells? Verse 1, he blames Elijah and conveniently leaves out God. He picks the soft target instead of hitting her hard with the facts and sitting her down at the kitchen table and saying, listen, Jezebel, love, your God's a dud. But there's no mention of God, the true and living God, just Elijah's part in the drama. And Ahab had seen it all, but he'd done nothing at all. He'd seen it all unfold in front of him. He'd seen the fire fall from heaven. He'd seen the failure of Baal. And yet what does he do? He says Elijah was involved and active. It's a bit like the crowds in Jesus' day, really, isn't it? Do you remember what happened in Jesus' day? Some were healed. Some had their sight restored. Others saw him walk in water. Some had their bellies filled, the 5,000 on the day uh, when he filled, filled them with loaves and fish. But they did not believe. They saw it all, but did nothing at all. They cheered him as a king on the way into Jerusalem one week, and the very next week they were calling for the same Jesus to be hung up on a cross. They enjoyed the show, but had no commitment at all. Each one of us can recall services, I'm sure, when God spoke to us clearly, or messages from this pulpit or this platform that gave us a sense that God was here. Bow the knee, come to Christ, return to God, leave that sin behind. You've heard it all from this pulpit. You've heard it in this church, some of you, for 50, 60, 70 years. But many of you are still saying, nah, I'm not listening to that. Many of us have seen how he's worked in other people's lives. And you've looked on intrigued as to how this person has come to faith in Jesus. And that person is growing in their faith. And this person has become a Christian. And you've looked at it all and you've scratched your head and wondered what's going on. You've heard it all. 
but you've done nothing at all. There are some of you sitting in Union Road and watching on live who've heard it all, but still you do nothing with the claims of Jesus. Is that you today? Afraid about what changes that might bring? Worried about the response? You know, it's not just kings like Ahab and palaces who spin a yarn to escape the conviction of sin that they need to turn to God for repentance. Breaks my heart that another ministry is going to come and go and still you're in Union Road and still you're not trusting in Jesus. Secondly, we see how this impacts the rest of the royal house. Look at verse 2. Jezebel didn't want to know. Jezebel didn't want to know. Look at what she says. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Listen, it would have been obvious to Jezebel that something very dramatic had happened. Elijah had left, or sorry, Ahab had left that morning with 450 prophets of Baal. Ahab returned by himself without the 450 prophets of Baal who were lying dead up on Mount Carmel. The dormitory of where they slept was empty. The canteen wasn't busy. The prophets of Baal were dead and gone and nowhere to be seen. It was deadly quiet. And that morning, the earth below her feet cracked beneath her because you know what? The ground was so dry. It hadn't rained for three and a half years. And suddenly, whenever Ahab returns, there's a deluge of rain. And suddenly, their garden and the palace is like a swimming pool. And still, she refuses to believe. Listen, Jezebel knew rightly what had happened. And even if her hapless husband couldn't spit it out, despite the ultimate humiliation of her God, she shows no sign of remorse, no sign of regret, no sign of concern. Rather, she puts her fingers in her ears and drowns out the sound of the rain as it beats upon the palace and the defeat of her prophets and the impotency of her bail and the embarrassment of her day. And she rounds on Elijah. She says, I'm going to kill Elijah. See what she says, though, in verse 2. It's very interesting. She doesn't say, I swear by Baal, because Baal's been proved to be false. See what she says now? I swear by the gods. She begins looking for other gods now to, to, to look to. Baal's been proved to be a failure, but now she's looking for anyone else apart from the true and living God. And you know what? She's so vehemently opposed to Elijah and increasingly opposed to his God. And whilst Ahab was weak and fearful of the truth, Jezebel is filled with hatred and wants to wipe out the truth. She wants to do away with God by doing away with Elijah. I love John chapter 1 because it is the gospel in one chapter. And what does John chapter 1 verses 9 to 11 tell us? The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, in other words, Jesus made the world, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Isn't that tragic? Isn't that utterly tragic when you read that on the screen today? The light of the world is rejected by the darkness of the world. The Savior of the world is rejected by the people he came to save. The Creator of the world by the people he created. Think of it, the one who said, let there be light. His light was snuffed out at the cross by the people that he gave life to. The God who gave us life the day we were born, the one whose beauty came into this world in the person of Jesus was rejected by the people of this world. 
the most beautiful, forgiving, loving, patient, kind, wise, honest man that ever lived was killed by this world because he was beautiful, forgiving, loving, patient, kind, wise, honest. And some of you are doing the Jezebel again and putting your fingers in your ears and saying, no, 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 not listening today. Even if it's David Leach's last Sunday, I'm not letting, no way, I'm listening to all this God talk. And rather, you'd rather go home and worship the God of the sun. It's a nice afternoon, sit out in your garden in your lovely deck chairs. The God of metal, your lovely car that you wash every week. The God of wood, the God of grass. Oh, you have a beautiful garden. The God of flesh, you love your family more than anything else. And those are all things that will weak and fail and let you down. And still you go, no, 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 not listening to the God who saves. How sad it would be come the end of your life. And none of us know when that will be. We can't plan it or script it or write it in our diaries or work towards it. How sad it would be on that day, having heard the gospel proclaimed in Union Road year after year, week after year, that because you rejected him in life, he will reject you in death. That's the reality. That's the reality. Friends, don't choose darkness. Step into the light. Unblock those ears. And so with all that's going on in the palace and the dreadful threat against Elijah, we begin this epic journey with Elijah in verses 3 and 4, as Elijah felt very much alone. On Mount Carmel, Baal had been absolutely whopped, hadn't he? He'd been whoop, burned up, straight away, gone, gone. And Elijah feels, having heard the great crowds in the mountain shout, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. When he comes down the mountain, where are they? He's all by himself. The crowds had shouted, the Lord, he is God. Don't come to his support. They don't ride to his support. They don't bring the resistance movement against Ahab and Jezebel and the false gods of Baal. He's left alone. There's no one standing with him. They're all scared. Look at what his heart's desire is. It's repeated twice in verses 10 and 14. Do you see it, verse 10? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And he repeats it in verse 14. He's basically saying, Lord, I love you more than anything else, but these people don't. They're not writing to my support. I know how so many of us as God's people have been through those kinds of experiences, haven't we? Some of us have had the mountaintop Sundays when we felt the fellowship at church was great or the preaching really spoke to us and the praise was heartfelt and then Monday comes and the alarm goes off and the dog's been sick and no one's emptied the dishwasher. The milk for your cereal's gone off. You can only find one shoe out of a pair. You're running late and the client that you struggle with most is the very first one on the phone as you get into work and bang, you're in the valley. Or you've been at that camp or that CU at university, and the memories are so real. The sense of God in that presence was so real in that room as you were singing and praying, and then it's back home, and the folks at home just don't get it, and church doesn't seem as It just seems really flat. Or maybe you've had successive answers to prayer, and you feel like you're a real prayer warrior, and big prayer after big prayer has been answered and answered again, and then suddenly you ask something of God, and it just feels like you're hitting a wall, or the ceiling's it just he's not hearing highs the lows or life is so good or family's happily getting on or your job is fine and the money's reasonable and then someone you love finds a lump 
or you get a phone call that fills your heart with dread. Listen, apply it to your own. But you all know what I'm talking about. One minute you've been up there, and the next minute you're way down there somewhere, and you're blaming everything else and even blaming God. Your life experiences might not have been as dramatic at Mount Carmel, but you were way up there, and God was great, and you'd seen him at work, and then things just seemed to fizzle out. And you came down to earth with a huge bang. You know, I was reading this week about the great dangers that astronauts face when they re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, having been in space. Did you know that even though they talk about the exhilarating flight upwards, up to the International Space Station, are those men who traveled to the moon all those years ago, or those who are just investigating and spending a couple of months out there, way out there in the galaxy somewhere. But they say, that's exhilarating and exciting. But you know what the hardest bit is? Re-entering Earth's atmosphere. Did you know if you get it wrong by even a split second, you'll be burnt to toast? Your capsule will combust, and you'll be blowing the smithereens on the way back down. The re-entry point is the hardest and most hazardous. And on those days, whenever you are feeling weak or sick or heady, you need to be careful if you have been there, what it's like to be there. I'll never forget, on a Sunday evening, walking out of Union Road, and Gordon and I were chatting, and we were walking out the door, and we were saying to each other, wasn't that just like being in heaven today? It was one of those days when people were excited and we, people had come to faith in the week before and things were happening and the church life was growing. On that Monday morning, we got news that devastated us. From the heights, the depths. From the moments of exhilaration, there will always be those moments of bang. Talk to Elizabeth about missionaries who return after years in the mission field, having served the Lord, the re-entry back to the home place is often the hardest, where missionaries really struggle to engage again because things have changed so much. Where have you been in life that's been a high? Beware, you will hit a low. And so Elijah's worn out from his re-entry, and he takes himself off then on a day's journey deep into the Israel's south. He's secure from Jezebel's clutches, and he prays that God, that he might die. Verse 4. wonder, did you ever think about this? To me, this is the most comforting part of this whole story. Elijah's on his own, and he prays that he might die. Verse 4. It's the only prayer of Elijah that God didn't answer positively. Isn't that right? He prayed that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain. He prayed that it would rain, and it did rain. He prayed that God would be faithful to the, the widow who had lost her son, and he was faithful. He prays, God, take my life. I can't take this anymore. And God says, no, I still work for you to do, Elijah. I love this. And actually, when you step in the second things, not only was God so faithful in saying to Elijah, still work for you. in fact, Elijah was one of only two characters in the Bible who didn't die. He was taken to heaven in a chariot of fire in 2 Kings. Verse 5, the Lord didn't answer his prayer. I love this, don't you? Instead of taking his life, the Lord restores his soul. The Lord comes along and lifts his head. And verse 5 also, the Lord didn't tell him off. He didn't look at Elijah on that broom tree and say, now listen, what are you at, Elijah? Come on, why is up waking up and get on with it? 
He doesn't give them a sermon. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't say, no, look at you. Get up, get in your feet. Stop moving about and get on. Instead, he says, Elijah, take a rest. Relax. You haven't had a chance to catch your breath for a long time. And verses 5 and 6, he says, get up and eat. God provides for such practical, practical ways. Verse 6 and 7, the Lord made a meal for him. This reminds me of one of those classic bloopers that sports commentators sometimes come out with. One that sticks in my memory is when a famous footballer was tackled and he was rolling around in the floor as if he'd been shot by a sniper as the commentator looked on and said, oh, he's gone down like a sack of potatoes and then he's made a meal of it. In other words, he's made a fuss out of nothing. But here God graciously provides for this weary servant and he does make a meal for him. There's no fuss God provides something so simple, a meal to help Elijah on his way. And in these moments, Elijah is reminded of God's gracious provisions, freshly baked bread, cool, refreshing water. It jogs his memory, doesn't it, about Zarephath and about the, the brook Cherith. There's a tenderness displayed in God's provisions for Elijah, an angel who brings comfort to this confused man of God. You know what? How I would rather fall into the hands of God than some Christian people I've met along the way who are ready to batter us down and are always complaining and driving us lower to the valley floor when sometimes all we need is rest. God saw and God provided. His grace is overwhelming and even whenever we do not seek it, he provides it. And so off he goes, trekking 40 days and 40 nights. And it's really interesting as we fast forward a little bit now and pick up the pace. He has a plan in place. He travels 40 days and 40 nights. He isn't just doing some random wandering in the desert. He's heading directly for the Mount Horeb. You see how Horeb's described in our Bibles? The mountain of God. Mount Horeb was the place of Mount Sinai. It was the Sinai range where God had met Moses and revealed himself to him through the burning bush and said, I am the great I am. It was also the place where they received the Ten Commandments. It was also the place where Israel and God had made this covenant that they would be with each other forever. It was at that place where God had said to Moses, I see the suffering of my people, and I will release them from slavery, and I will bring them into a pleasant land. I want you to get this for a moment today. Elijah was going to a place that was significant because of its salvation history for all of Israel. And we need to do that as well. We need to drag ourselves kicking and streaming at times back to that place of our salvation. And it wasn't on a certain date, in a certain place, in a certain meeting. The place of our salvation that we need to drag ourselves back to day after day, week after week, is the cross dragging our minds even reluctantly back to that place where we see what the Savior has done for us. That place where we find no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, where there's a forgiveness for every sin. How we need to keep getting back to see and hear the words of our covenant-keeping God. You know, sometimes people say to us in life, the first sign of madness is if you talk to yourself. That's not true. The first sign of madness is if you listen to yourself. But talking to yourself is really important. David and I, over the last number of months, have been working through a book every week together called Spiritual Depression by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in which he puts on his medical and his pastor's hats on at the same time. 
And he's, some people might say talking to yourself is the first sign of madness. He says it's actually the first sign of sanity. And here's a quote on the screen. He says, have you realized that the most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Let me tell you to take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning that you have not originated them, but they start talking to you and they bring back all the issues in your life and the sins you've committed and the failures of life. Friends, that's, that's listening to yourself. You've got to sit yourself down and talk to yourself and say, I am loved and saved by the Lord Jesus who gave his life for me and nothing will wrestle me out of his hands for he has said there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you wake up tomorrow morning, if you think yourself wretched, remember God thinks you're great and you're loved and you're kept and you're held and you're his. Be careful what you listen to but make sure you talk to yourself. And then we read that the Lord meets Elijah on the mountain, don't we, in verses 9 to 14. For Elijah, having traveled these 40 days and 40 nights, settles into Mount Horeb, and along comes that earth-shredding wind that David was talking about earlier that tears the mountain apart, and scatters the stones and the heather, and it rips up the landscape like a sheet of paper. God sends it, but God wasn't in it. Then comes the earthquake and the fire one after the other and stands Elijah witnessing God's power playing with nature. God's just playing with nature here. He's toying with these powerful and devastating elements of creation, but God's not in those either. But just as the fire passes by burning in all its brilliance, then comes this thin sound, an almost indistinguishable whisper, something that wasn't quite silence, but something absolutely shattering. It was at that moment Elijah hid his face because it was there he found himself in the presence of God. He pulled his cloak over his face and stood at the mouth of the cave. But do you hear the words of God? What would you expect God to say to Elijah at a time like this? Look at what he does say. It's a question. What are you doing here, Elijah? That's a great question, isn't it? What are you doing here? And we need to get what's going on. If you've tuned out for the last 10 minutes, we really need to get what's going on here. Because in 1 Kings 18 in Mount Carmel, we see false religion is all about noise and whipping people into a frenzy like the prophets of Baal, believing that the louder we shout, the more we sacrifice, the more emotion we show, the more dramatic it is, the more effective we are, the more satisfying. But that is not worship. 1 Kings 19 on the Mount of the Lord is God in the earthquake, wind, or fire? No, he's not in the dramatic. But rather, he comes to the shattered and the stressed and the burnt out and the broken man, Elijah. And he meets him with just a quiet word. Or to put it another way, when he asks, what are you doing here? He's saying, Elijah, my friend, where are you at in life? What's going on with you right now? It's the very first question in the Bible too. Did you know that? The very first, if you're ever doing a quiz, the very first question in the Bible is God asking, where are you? It's the question that God's been asking of us as a people since that very first day when Adam and Eve tried to hide from their sin and hide behind that bush. And God says to you, and he says to me today, where are you? And let me ask you today, Really, honestly, where are you at in life? 
Where are you with God? If you've been a Christian for years, really, where are you at in your life now? Are you closer to him now than you were two years ago, five years ago? Why are you hiding from him? Are you holding back from him instead of stepping forward and seeing his power? Maybe you're a tired disciple of Jesus today. Maybe you feel like giving up. Maybe you're gutted for yourself. Maybe there's a deep sadness inside. Maybe you've become lazy. Maybe you're an expert in covering up and covering up from everyone else. Maybe you've run away from God. I want you to hear and apply that question to your heart today. Whoever you are, whatever's going on with you, you don't need to answer me, but you do need to answer this before God. What are you doing with your life at the moment? Where are you at? I I want you to go home and ask that question. Where are you at with God at this moment? Where are you at? And what will our reply be? You know, there's a great comfort from this passage for all of us because often we go looking for signs and significance or something startling or striking. We're too often chasing earthquakes and wind and fire, but the Lord is in the whisper of his word. It's in the word of God that his power lies. How do we know? Because God said, let there be and there was. The word that said from the cross, it is finished and it was. And from the word in this mountain on that day, he doesn't ask us to whip ourselves into a state of frenzy, but he asks us in all our brokenness, where are you? Where are you? The word from the Lord in this mountain on that day, he doesn't ask us to whip ourselves up, but he asks us to be acknowledging before God that we're broken and failed and frail. And we're finishing now. The last thing, the Lord had much more for him still to do. I'm not going to go into every detail in verses 15 to 18, but here we read that he still has a big work for Elijah to do, to appoint two new kings, verses 15 and 16. He promised him a colleague to assist him, Elisha, to share the load. And finally, the Lord opens his eyes to show that Elijah is not alone. In fact, there are 7,000 people still in Israel who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. The Lord promises Elijah a future, a friend, and indeed a community. Our God was happy to use this broken servant in the task that lay ahead. On a very cold Sunday morning that I was asked to preach as sole nominee for the congregations of Union Road and La Comfort in January 2015, I finished my sermon on that day by sharing the story of one of my heroes. He was from East Belfast, so he was from Goodstock. He founded what became the Kwaibo Mission, now Mission Africa. His name was Samuel Bill. And he left East Belfast in response to the call of some chiefs from the West Niger Protectorate that's now called Nigeria. And he arrived in a place that he had never been. He left behind his family, most of whom he'd never see again, intent of bringing the good news of Jesus to an area of the world known as the white man's grave due to his infectious diseases, malaria, and the dangerous tribes round about. But he'd been inspired to go into missionary service to the words of a man who worked in the shipyard who was his Sunday school teacher called Bob McCall. And nearly every Sunday in life, dear old Bob would say to Sam Bill in the Sunday school class, boys, never disobey God. It is safe to follow him anywhere. What is God calling you to be? What needs to change in your life big time today? 
Where's God calling you to go? What's he calling you to do? I simply couldn't do what I'm about to do without a knowledge that it's safe to follow him anywhere. What's he asking? No, in fact, what's he telling you today to do? Where's he sending you? To whom are you going to go? Dale Ralph Davis concludes, 1 Kings 19 teaches you that you needn't fear being a broken servant when you're such a kind and an adequate God. I stand before you today, friends, as a broken servant who has let many of you down on countless times. But I thank God, I have a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, full of love. 1 Kings 19 teaches that you needn't fear being a broken servant when you've such a kind and an adequate God. Is he your God? What are you doing for him? Where will you go with him? What is he saying to you today? As you answer that question, where are you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of your word that comes not in earthquakes or winds or fire, but this is the same power of God that created this world that completed the salvation from our sin, that says it is finished and says, let there be light. May this word take root in our hearts and change us impenetrably forever. For you, O God, our Lord, help us to faithfully and honestly carve out that time to answer that big question, where are we? Where are we? For you alone know and you alone see, may we be honest in our answer because we know you're faithful in your kindness. Bless us, we pray, and go before us into the rest of this day. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. 